So welcome, everyone. Welcome. Feels a little bit to me like the first day of spring training. <laughs> because, <laughs> because it's a new series, which often sets the tone for the year. Uh, I don't know in this case how long this will go. The theme of dependent origination can go as long as we want it to go. But uh, I'm interested in it feeding you, not just me elaborating on something. So time to time I'll check in with you to make sure that this is working. Uh, it's uh, one of the more learned uh, subjects in the sense that so much has been written on it over the centuries and uh, so, much, so much has been expounded upon and uh, editorialized and elaborated and that uh, it's hard to see anything fresh and new, but especially when it has 2,500 years of papancha associated with it, it's a, it's a little hard to see with any kind of newness. <clears throat> uh, so I would will make every effort not to make it um, uh, learned and erudite. I don't want it to be uh, technical. I want it to be a, a living, something that we can connect with in our living situation, something that feeds us and means something in terms of how we live, not just in terms of the subtlety in which it can be derived uh, from a very, uh, very, very nuanced sense of, of uh, experience. That's also available, uh, but for most of us who house our householders, that line is really not available to us. But uh, to, to sort of uh, make it approachable and just as valid at whatever level we see it. Uh, but before I get to it and start speaking about it, I want to talk about where we've been and how it feeds where, where we're going. Uh, as most of you know, we have just ended a year of talking about the fundamentals of the Dharma. And the fundamentals, when they're actually practiced, are extraordinary uh, uh, endeavors towards the place where dependent origination is pointing. The Dharma really only lines up in one way. It lines up in true north. Uh, many of us attempt to make it uh, so that it provides us the comfort of the life we know <clears throat> and to sort of smooth off the rough edges of some of our character, perhaps, and to provide a, a, a guiding light towards growing and uh, sort of honing our spiritual skills. Uh, but really it points true north. I mean, the Buddha was very clear that his teaching only had one purpose and one end, and that was towards liberation, liberation of spirit, liberation. And uh, so it's hard, uh, although it seems to be endlessly done by many people, it's hard for me to talk too much about the extraneous points of Buddhism without keeping it pointing true north. And so those fundamentals that we spoke about all last year were really true north, north pointings. Uh, they weren't meant to uh, allow us to sort of settle into a happy relationship and a kind of compatible relationship with, with Dharma at some kind of sort of a, as an offbeat uh, hobby. They're meant to sort of break down the wall of our entrenched paradigm and to start showing us, you know, that if you follow any of these fundamentals conclusively forward, they start showing you holes in those walls. They start revealing uh, the very light that's behind the obscuration that we that we, that we protect ourselves from, the light we protect ourselves from. And uh, virtually every one of the fundamentals can do just that. They're all there to show us that 
all facts are at our service towards liberation. All facts. That's a fundamental teaching. You can't eliminate or exclude any fact, any experience, and expect to then be on a sure trail, the sure path to freedom. And so one of the questions or one of the ways that we need to keep uh, encouraging ourselves forward is to face that truth, to look at the experiences that are arising and see whether they're inclusive or we're excluding them, whether we're denying them, whether we're turning away from them, whether we're holding on to them for dear life, strangling them. And so... Uh, really, the fundamentals were adept ways at bringing us along into a shift of paradigms. Uh, so that was the point of last year, <laughs> said this year. So this year is going to be, uh, or at least a good part of it, will be about what lies, what's that wall composed of? That wall that we are... Uh, interrupting and uh, digging holes and burrowing into to see the light on the other end. What's what's the composition of that wall? What's it? How does it form? What what? Why? How does it arise? I like to think, actually, that uh, if if we looked at life. Uh, from its true perspective, likely we would see it being very chaotic. In fact, uh, people who have been blind and had their uh, blindness cured at a middle age, when they take off the bandages, want the bandages placed back on because it's too chaotic what they see. It doesn't make any sense. It's just flashes of light, color, and uh, it's not composed into a seamless whole yet. And I think that what dependent origination does for us is and why we keep investing in the endless sequential results of dependent origination is it provides us a sense of world stability and it also allows us to have a place within that stability. It gives us world order. If you want to call the disposition of the world orderly, it gives us that form of order. It gives us something where we can sit back and know what everything is in a kind of seamless way and know its derivation in terms of its history and have some sense of our own place within things. And so from that point of view, it's, it really is the holder of the paradigm of separation. It really creates from the building blocks of perception a sense of who I am and who you are and what all this is and our history with it and our future going forward. And uh, But it's it's a very elaborate uh, system that essentially points towards emptiness. Now, we have to be careful because we have to understand, first of all, that there is no spiritual, there's no, nothing is sacred without it being empty. Emptiness is the reason that something is sacred. There's, you, there's no... There's no way to sidestep that truth. That emptiness is the sacred. And if you look at why it is that we look so hard for it, it's because we're looking at it from the secular. We're looking at it from the formed, not from the empty. We're looking at it from the sense of formation, from the sense of identification, from the sense of the assurance of having a position in life, we look out from that position trying to find something that is sacred. 
And we don't really see anything that's sacred because the way our perceptions are formed from the sense of self is that it has everything formed and known. And so when anything is formed and known, the sacred can't reveal itself. So we tie ourselves in a knot because we are forming life through our experiences and memories of it. At the same time we're forming life, we are being formed through those very memories. And together, the sense of the world and us arising keeps us from sensing anything that could be beyond the form, keeps us limited to just the forms we see, and that obscures anything that the heart feels as sacred or truly nourishing for it. So it's no small, it's no small entrapment that we have been enclosed, we have enclosed ourselves within. And so it's, it's worth uh, settling back and really deciding whether we want to go this route or not. You know, I mean, we can stay formed and continue to polish the form and I've spoken a lot about that and probably a good percentage of spiritual work has to do with just that. And, but inside of us, we sense the limitation of just relating to life in our known way. We feel, the, we feel a growing sense of limitation with that, or we should be feeling that. And the more we investigate it, the more heightened that sense of limitation becomes. And yet, we're scared to really crack the wall completely open because we don't know what's on the other side. Words like emptiness don't sound very inviting to us. They sound like we're going to be decimated, blown away, come up empty-handed in this thing, which is not true at all but it's our fear, and so we stay kind of self-protected behind the wall, even as we kind of listen to the wall, what's on the other side, we wonder what's on the other side, and we poke at it a little bit. We don't want to poke too hard, or we might put our hand through it, but we just kind of, we just kind of do this dance with it. Now, uh, this series is about how the wall is formed. So we're going to take you and hopefully, we're going to have you put your hand right through it. Okay. So doing, you're going to touch qualities that can only be described as being sacred. Depths of stillness, quietude. Of wonder and mystery. of a fullness and inclusivity of heart. Of conscious, of a consciousness that thrives, alive. And as we go through the process, the sequential process of dependent origination, you'll see that what really holds the sequencing uh, cohesively together from one link to the next is uh, our wish to have it continue. It's, uh, the ignorance of it is not completely conscious. I'm not suggesting that we... But, but it's, it, there's a deliberate looking away in most cases. Now, that's what last year was about, was to look and see how it is that we keep life distant to us, how we keep pretending that it's something that it's not, and the willingness to look at it in its true relationship breaks that denial apart. And that, in doing that again and again, orients us to a proper view and posture to where dependent origination is ultimately pointing. So these fundamentals are not something that are, you know, some activities aside from 
the general purpose and intent of dependent origination, they are the activity of emptiness. This is how emptiness relates to life. How form relates to life, we know very well. We hide from difficulty, we uh, run after those pleasurable components that we think we can keep in place. We deny facts as they're coming to us. We defend ourselves uh, very successfully in seeing our role and part in our projections uh, and our uh, emotional qualities. So we should be, at this point, very aware of how we perpetuate the sense of life doing it to us. We're being done by life rather than we're actually involved in the transformation of life. We're actually involved in its formation, it's in the formation of life itself. Independent origination will begin to show us that we are the creators of life. We're not passive in this. That this is something that's arising within our consciousness. That, as the Buddha said, the whole of the world, and he wasn't, he wasn't embellishing this statement, the whole of the world arises in this fathom-long body. And so th- this might be seen as the culmination of his teaching. It includes many other facets of the teaching besides just dependent origination. It includes, for instance, uh, much of the Four Noble Truths. And so we're going to be seeing a lot of, of other factors of his teaching that we've already exposed ourselves to. But this one is going to, uh, it, should, it should keep us uh, on our edge. I hope it does. Uh, I hope that you move with it in a way that you're comfortable, but whatever way that you're comfortable, you're also seeing at the, the possibilities in front of you of where you could go if uh, perhaps we weren't quite as fearful as we are. So that's my hope. You'll also run up, when you're talking about dependent origination, you're going to run up against the word faith. Because if the dependent origination shows us our emptiness, then what is it that holds all this together? What is it that keep, what, where is it that we land when we release or surrender uh, the a projected sense of me. What 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 holds us? What catches us? Where's the safety net? And so we're going to be talking about faith, although faith is not a step in this these twelve links. It is an, a component part, a companion part of this series. And. Uh, we're also going to be exploring, knowing that uh, the continuum of spirituality moves us from form, the belief in us being what we think we are in this moment, to formlessness, the knowledge and certainty that we are a process that's building upon itself moment after moment, not an entity that's established in durational. And the knowledge of that, the understanding of that, the seeing of that, which is where the Buddha is taking us, the actual seeing of how this formlessness pretends to be form. And the seeing of that also assures us that it's safe to release the need to be form because, in fact, we've just pretended to be form. And the willingness to do that through the seeing and the understanding and the wisdom of, of watching this unfold and build upon itself allows the formlessness to come to arise. So it's not from your ambition, it's not from your will, it's not from your force and your um, exerted effort, it's from seeing 
And there's a beautiful, uh, there's a beautiful uh, circular truth that uh, the formlessness that we are longing for because it holds the sacred is the very method we use with form to show form is not what it has believed itself to be. So we use the end as the means to derive ourselves to, to uh, the, the goal. So this uh, sense of dependent origination, uh, it is some, it's called in the literature Pachita Samupada, translated as dependent origination, as I mentioned, or codependent origination, or codependent arising, or causal interdependence. And I'll get into all of what all that means. But basically, uh, it's the process of how we form ourselves in the world moment after moment. And as we find ourselves manifesting moment after moment as a sense of self, uh, and we create the world from our memory and our invested interests, a dialogue ensues between ourselves and that world because we have artificially cracked ourselves and broken ourselves apart from the world. The world started as in union and then this process of dependent origination cracked it into two. And in order to keep it as two, we have to talk about it. And the talking about it keeps it separate and distant. It keeps it a thing. If I can talk about the world as a thing, then I can be assured that I'm not that thing. And so an ongoing ensuing dialogue with the world uh, is the result of our separating ourselves from it. And then, of course, when you have yourself as being separate from, which, again, is... the what dependent origination begins to show us, you start having forming views about what you need from it. What it also provides by cracking itself in two is that now you can have an experience of it. You couldn't have an experience of it when you're together with it. You can't have an experience. The thing itself can't have an experience of itself. So we had to objectify it in order to then have the experience of it. Now we have the experiencer and the experience, and now we can run after the experiences we wish to have. Unfortunately, and this is where the whole thing breaks down, is that those experiences don't last. And this is an incredibly important point that's, that is not directly uh, focused upon in dependent origination, but is an, alluded to, is the idea of the fact that nothing can sustain itself for very long at all because everything is built upon conditions. Uh, We will get to what that means in just a moment, but let me just say it in summary, is that this whole idea of myself being here and the world being external to myself is built upon certain internal conditions that I have formulated and I have to maintain those conditions in order for me to see the world as I wish to see it as separate from me. So I keep, as I mentioned, keep speaking about it. I keep talking about it. I keep saying you and I keep saying I. And if as long as I can say I and I can say you, then my perception will follow that logic, will follow those words. And so I just keep reinforcing my place in things. And if I ever let it slip, if I ever stop speaking, it comes back together again because it's only my force of language that keeps it apart. So to keep it from coming back together again, I have to keep my language. I have to keep uh, speaking about it, right? I have to keep, one of the ways I keep speaking about it is I keep chasing after it because then I assure myself that you're, this is worth pursuing and I argue when I don't have it and I long for something when I want more of it 
and the configuration of the world that I am now creating isn't the one I really want. And so I'm struggling with my own creation all the time, which creates more language and more angst, more reactivity, which assures that I stay, keep my distance from it. So you get, you're getting this a little bit? Getting a feeling? It's just okay if you're not yet. I just want to give you, this is an overview. We're not going to get into the links tonight or even next week, but we're going to, we're just giving you an overview. The sense of, uh, of the struggle that we have created uh, by uh, forming the world the way we have formed it. But herein lies the hope of dependent origination, these links of conditionality, is that uh, if something can be done, if I can talk my way into separation, I can also learn to be quiet and have it come back together. So there's hope for the ending of this uh, isolation that we have derived. And that is where dependent origination, we can invest. We can see that there's a possibility here of the ending of all of this. The Buddha said it like this. He said that uh, when a noble disciple fully sees the arising and cessation of the world and the sense of self, he or she is said to be endowed with perfect view, with perfect vision, to have attained the true dharma, to possess the knowledge and skill, to have entered the stream of the dharma, to be a noble disciple replete with purifying understanding, one who is at the very door of the deathless. Now, uh, the part I want to reinforce here is that when a noble disciple fully sees, if we're willing to look at this thing, when we're willing to look at whatever uh, area we're most interested in and we look deeply enough into it, then we will see how it is that we are investing our own energies into keeping it and having it continue and that that can be arrested. That can be stopped. We can simply surrender the need to continue to do that. And this thing can turn around. And may I say it's that close. It isn't after 20 years of sitting in meditation on retreat that it gets any closer. That when we see it, we can end it if we so wish. So what happens is that this is the way that the sense of self in the world is formed and we see our way out of that conditioning. We see our way out of ourselves. So I'm going to just change tracks here a little bit and we're going to go into what dependent origination actually is in terms of its overview. And uh, we're going to look a little more uh, at this linkage of one uh, set of conditions leading into another set of conditions. It's a it's a perceptual, it's it's a Something arises according to dependent origination because there are conditions that allow it to arise. Now, what does that mean? Uh, Mostly we think in terms of a single causal condition. We say that I came here because that occurred. I heard somebody talk about Sims, so I came to Sims, or whatever it might be. But if we actually look at what and why and how it is the factors that had to arise in order for us to be here tonight, you'll see that it is the world had to respond, not just a whole set of factors around you. I mean, just look at your car had to work, right? Your significant other had to agree to it, or your family arrangement had to be compatible with it. The weather had to be in conjunction with it on and on, you begin to see that it isn't a single event that created your arriving here tonight, but 
And then each of those causes have causes of their own. And so the proliferation of what it took to bring you here tonight was universal. Everything. It took everything. It took the universe to bring you here tonight. Now, we don't usually think that way, but it's a very important turn that I want us to start thinking about. I want us to start reflecting upon. I want us to start encouraging because you see you're not alone in, in your life. That you're not an isolated event. There is no such thing as an isolated event. Uh, and there never was. That we are and we always have been uh, arising from a list of causal events. Not necessarily one event, but many events that arise together to create our positionality, our actions of body, speech, and mind. A couple of examples. One is uh, like if it snows. What are the conditions for snow to actually fall? Well, you say, okay, so there has to be a certain humidity in the air. There has to be a certain weather, right? There has to be a certain temperature. On and on. And you can begin to see that nothing that we claim reference to as occurring exists independently of the conditions that allows that to occur. And so then those conditions then become, in effect, other conditions and on and on and go. Now the fact that it's snowing keeps you from coming here tonight. And so it just... So the whole thing is not in isolation. And this is the most important part of the talk, the emphasis of the talk this evening, is that sense of being, it's already interconnected. It's not as if we have to, you know, force some kind of illogical sequence to make it interconnected. You can begin to sense that it's interconnected in all aspects, in everything we do. If you're going to spend some time writing, what is, has to happen for you to write? Well, you say, I just need my desk. No, you don't just need your desk. You need, first of all, the ability to write. Then you need the circumstances, the quietness, in order to write. And then you need the pen to be there, and you need the paper. And you need the ink, right? And you need to have some idea of what you want to say. And all of those, you can't say, though, that writing came about because of the pen, can you? or writing came about because of the desire to write. All of those factors had to be there in order for writing to occur. And they were not sequential. They all had to be there simultaneously for writing to occur. Now, when we go through these 12 links of dependent origination, it's not helpful to think that the preceding link was the sole cause of, the, of that which is arising out of it. All of the links influence the arising of the next link. This is not independent of all of the causes that arise. And to start, but, but most importantly in our life, and the homework that I'm inviting us into, is to begin to actually get a feeling for that in our life. See, what, when you're out on the freeway and somebody uh, pulls out in front of you, what, and you get angry at that person, that's the cause and effect that we assume in our minds, but if you start thinking about what cause and effect actually had to occur for that whole sequence of events to arise, you would be less likely to lose your sanity in it. And so it's just to start seeing that many, many more things are at play here than any single cause. The Buddha described it like this. He says, when there is this, that is. With the arising of this, that arises. When this is not, neither is that. With the cessation of this, that ceases. Well, I mean, that's a little vague. 
the, the point he's trying to make is that nothing comes into existence on its own. Nothing is a standalone event in life. Nothing. And if we can break through the need to see in that way, we begin to pierce the wall of our separation. And that's why we talk about Wise view of interconnectedness. Interconnectedness is not a theory that we'd like to believe in. It's the actual living fact of how we live. And as we break through the causal conditions, we begin to find even more subtle truths about the interconnectedness of life uh, and how it is tied together in unison in ways that the causal events don't necessarily explain. So this thing just keeps pulling us deeper and deeper, richer and richer into its meaning, into its meaning. And so take the homework and really be deliberate about your reflections uh, and contemplations of it. It's, if we want to establish a clear direction for us to move our spiritual life so that we do, so that we can touch, so that we can know, so that we can live with the sacred. This is how we have to do it. We have to start breaking down that wall of isolation that we claim such reference to. And it doesn't happen on its own. It happens through introspection. It happens through looking, examining, inquisition, questioning. Now, doctrinally, uh, dependent origination uh, is usually talked about in one of two ways. It's either talked about in terms of past life influences upon this life and this life's influences upon the next life. So it's kind of like three separate lives. And it works in that way, but uh, you have to bring in rebirth and karmic formations and all kinds of stuff uh, that I'm not... Uh, particularly given to my own way and the way that I think it's much more clear and concise is to think of dependent origination as a momentary formation moment after moment and that allows us to experience it directly not as some kind of, of future or past event but something very directly within our line of experience and to make it understandable so that we can, we can get a feeling for this thing and start moving it. I mean, much of dependent origination we've talked about in other segments of other talks, like when we spoke about feelings in the Satipatthana Sutta. That's a link in the dependent origination. The link of dependent origination has 12 sequences that lead eventually towards uh, the person and then the person uh, uh, aging and then the person dying or the experience that the person is having aging and then the ending of that experience which is the way again I'm going to, going to see it. But the importance of dependent origination is not just in terms of what and how I see my own individual existence it also you can see the ignorance at play, the complete uh, denial of the processes that are involved in our formation. You can see it politically, you can see it socially and culturally, you can see it through the infighting and the wars that are created, the sexism, racism, all of that, all of it. You can begin to see that those monstrosities, those events, those, that antagonism, that conflict grows out of the same conditions that our own conflict grows out of. That it manifests in exactly the same way on a, on a gross level in a community or a nation as it does on the individual level. And you can see that there could also be an ending to that. As there can be an ending to our own misery, there can be an ending to the misery on a universal level. And so from that level, it also gives us some sense of hope, some sense that uh, 
we can straighten ourselves out and live a sane world. The most important thing uh, is that it is not deterministic. That is, it's nothing is inevitable here. If we're willing to perceive what is occurring and we're willing to look at what we're, where our energies are moving and, we're, and we can see and correct that misunderstanding, that ignorance of what we have thought we were, if we're willing to correct that, then nothing is deterministic. We can end the sequencing. What I want, the, the subtlety of it is, and this is where some teachers, I feel some Buddhist teachers miss, is that they say, you know, you, you, right at contact or right where the feeling tone is, that's where you need to invest your energy and so that you don't move the thing on from feeling to craving to clinging to becoming and all the other sequences that if you just follow the feeling and stay with the feeling it won't move to the next linkage that's how it's usually taught but I say to you in its most subtle way if you are doing that if you are inserting your intentionality into any link and you're manipulating that link or surrendering to that link or the cause of your arising is already determined through your efforts to insert yourself into the influence of what you see. It's done. It's already over. Now, so this has to be even more subtle than our need to fix it. It's not like the machine is broken and I have to go in with my wrenches here. All I have to do, and this is this absolute simplicity of dependent origination, and yet it is the most difficult thing to do because form hates doing nothing. It's to see. That is the solution. To see only. Not to tinker, not to try to disrupt or dislodge or end or follow something through. It's to see. The seeing is already liberated. It's what the seeing is invested in. The identification the seeing has with what's going on. And that's caused by not seeing thoroughly enough. When you see thoroughly enough, there's no longer an investment of identification in anything. And that is freedom. And the sequencing ends on its own. Not through our will or need to have it end. So I think I'll stop there tonight. I know I'm already more technical than many of you wish. I will work to bring it down into more of a relationship with our life, but I do need to give us an overview. So this talk and the next talk are going to be overview talks that just give you a sense of what this thing, dependent origination, is. There are lots of readings and homework assignments from other very learned people on the web. I want to encourage you to go there, not my homeworks, they'll be on the table, but other people who I respect and appreciate, and you can work with their, uh, their um, contemplations, reflections, and exercises uh, to sort of Oyster your own uh, uh, understanding. Okay, all. So maybe we can just sit for a minute. I think you can see why I have postponed this until this last. I've talked about everything else in Buddhism <laughs> because I the, the technical, the way it gets technical. I that's not. I'm not given to that kind of speech, and yet I do think that it's essential that we go through this thing to understand the linkages of how it is that this something comes from nothing. How is it that this something that we all see, how is it derived? Because it's derived from nothing. How does that work? How can that happen? 
if you the greatest magician trick of all time and what we're going to work on is seeing the something that we suppose as the nothing that is the truth and what we will be doing is becoming an unconscious somebody will be moving from a unconscious somebody to a conscious nobody that's the path okay so if you have any questions or comments I'd be happy to flounder Yes. Uh, if you look at on our front page, you, there are these buttons on the right side, and one of them says "Dependent Origination." Push the button, and it takes you to the whole display. Okay. Now, some of them won't be up because I just sent uh, our web person some additional homeworks so there are a lot of them that will be up in a few days but there's much that's up there right now to read and to, to understand yes when you said that it, it's language that actually um, creates separation um, do you mean it's, it's thought forms that create separation or is it actually So the question is, when I said that language or thought creates the sense of separation, uh, that's part of the linkage that we'll be talking about in the dependent origination. And uh, it's the formation of yourself based upon your memories of yourself going forward. And then the communication the from the abstract way we see uh, because we are, we, we, the way our eyes are trained to see is through the memory of our life. I mean, everything you see is something you know, nothing that you don't know. It's because the, the, it's filtered through memory, right? And that keeps things being known to you as separate from you because you've had a memory with those things. And so when they show up in your life anew, you say, oh, I recognize that. That's a chair. I know exactly what to do with a chair. It's an object, and I can sit in it. You see, So the knowledge you have of it, the abstraction you have, the concept you have of it, keeps it separate from you as something that you can utilize, but not something that is you. It's the thought. Yeah. I can, yes. Uh, what I mean is the, the sense of, of me that tries to protect and have the world just be what it knows it to be. And, and so it, it has its own way to configure the world, its own ideas about the world, its own language with the world. Uh, it has everything sort of tied in together, right? So nothing new can really come in through that. It walls it out, so to speak. So there really isn't any light that can show us anything else but except that the echoing sounds that we have made with the world from what we know it to have been and we know it to be. Do you see? So it's all, it's very enclosed. It's like one, I think the Hindu tradition is like a thousand mirrors all facing itself. Everything's reflecting in but nothing is allowed to come in through the mirror. Uh, and that is, that, that is an, isn't an inaccurate picture of how it is that we manifest as a human being. Uh, and the reason that we're never completely satisfied in there is because, because it's a misconfigured, it's misconfigured. A, a part of us is outside of that. Part of us isn't, we aren't able to access because it lives outside of that. 
It lives in the wonder. It lives in the mystery. It lives in the communion of things. And but staying inside the wall, the walled enclosure, we never access that. And so we long for it, but we don't know how to access it. We don't know how to... We sense that something is out there that could be very helpful and meaningful to us, but we don't have any sense of how to get to it. And what we try to do then is we try to use the same strategies we have within the wall, which is chasing after something, grasping after something, being aversive, as a way to use those same strategies to, to access the sacred. But when we use those strategies, we stay walled and we keep distant from the sacred because the strategies we use form the very walled-in structure that we are complaining about. Okay, so all of that is to say that we have to come to this in a completely new way. That's why I'm just, I'm just edging up on it. I'm just, you know, I'm just like edging up. If you said, oh, I don't understand anything you were talking about. I don't, I, I'm just, you know, I'm just painting something here. Let, if I get put one brush stroke on the canvas, you say, I don't, what, that's no good. What, I don't understand that. Well, I'm not finished painting. Let me paint. <laughs> and at some point, oh, something's coming clearer here. Just, but you've got to stay with this. You've got to stay with it, okay? So questions and answers are very helpful. Yes, Lauren. Yes. 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 The scene. Yes. Yes. That's it. Yes. He was breaking down the wall, wasn't he? Yes. And and so I was thinking of, say, I'm meditating and I hear a horn, but that's immediately a concept. That's right. Not just the hearing. That's right. And so to stay that open. That's right. Closing into a concept. That's right. How do you do that? Well, you aren't going to do it by eliminating the concept because that's what we try to do. We try not to think horn. Okay, you can't do it that way because you can't stop thinking. That, that is an incumbent part of the experience or perception you're having. What you can do is have an awareness that includes the thought horn but, is, but isn't so tied to that concept that it only hears the sound as horn. Now it can hear the sound in a pristine way and see or think, have the thought occur, oh, that's horn. But those two aren't tied together in a way that closes down the information, the totality of the information. Do you see that? So don't try not to have the thought horned. Relax. You see, so you, your inclusivity broadens. So your awareness broadens beyond just knowing that as horn. And listen to it. So focus in so you're listening to what the ear hears. And you're also including, but not as a cover, what the mind thinks it's hearing. And that is the way out of this. It's never pitting one side against the other. I'm going to be completely quiet so I don't have any thoughts. You can be assured that if you move in that direction, you'll have more thoughts, not fewer. Okay? So you, ju- you, you sit and you... There's an awareness that holds all things. It holds the thought horn, and it also holds the sound as it's arising. And it knows both of those things. And it doesn't confuse those things as being the same. And the less you invest the, the terminology of horn onto that sound, the quieter you become. The less horn, the, the thought horn, will, will be so pronounced that it covers over the sound. At first it's like, Oh, horn, I've got to get rid of this. You know, it's like they're both... It's just, and he said, just wait a second here. Just let me give it some patience, give it some space. Let me just hear and let the thought occur. It's fine. I'm not interfering with anything. See, now you're backing into true seeing rather than into mental 
mental gymnastics. Okay, so when we say relax, that's really the way out of this predicament. So now I can hear the horn, know it's a horn, but it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't obscure the purity of the sound. And so I don't get angry at whoever's honking that horn. If I know it only as horn, then the next following sequence, which is dependent origination, will be I'm angry at whoever honked it. If it's interfering, if I don't like it, if the feeling tone is aversive, and the clinging towards that which I would rather have, which is quiet, no horn, and then I've become somebody who hates horns. Right? And then that experience dies. It gets old, the horn goes away, it dies, right? And then the birth of a new horn or a new situation or a motorcycle this time or a jackhammer. Do you see? We just went through it. <laughs> Let me just, I gotta recover. <laughs> 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 yes, Kathy. I'm kind of following on that. I kind of bring it down to practice, I think. I'm wondering, could this, I was struck with what you said about seeing as opposed to some of the way other teachers teach, and that that seems that's effortless compared to this other kind of switching. And for the first time tonight in my meditation, That's surrender. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Right. Right. So she's saying that uh, her practice has been so effortless, effortful, that uh, she has sort of been on top of herself all along, and tonight she has some sniffles and realized that she can't make her practice what it wants to and has just surrendered to the way body is. So you notice that it's relaxed, you know, that there isn't, a, there isn't any perturb, it's not, it's not in conflict with anything, it's not struggling, right? It's just the way it is. There's no, see that, that is, awareness has no conflict, right? If you think, oh, I shouldn't have a cold, then you're in conflict. The fact is you do have a cold. But if awareness doesn't think like that. Awareness is just holding you that has the cold. It's not arguing with whether you should be here or whether how difficult your meditation is. All it is is holding you, holding you, surrounding you. And whatever display or the way you manifest, it doesn't complain. It doesn't try to change that at all. And when you get a sense of the awareness that surrounds rather than the me that is fighting the cold, then you can get a sense of what true surrender means. You surrender the argument, the counter, the counter argument that claims reality is going astray because I have a cold or the horn is honking. Okay? So go, go very slow... Okay, so don't make that into a concept that you're trying to work yourself into. But when you see irreversibly that reality is going, and I, there's not a thing I can do to change it, then give up trying to change it. Just surrender to the fact of the way it's going and see what happens in that release. Now, now in that moment, what you have done in terms of the sequenciation of dependent origination is you've surrendered the narrative that is an argument with reality. That's all you've done. 
you've decided to be quiet rather than to continue to complain. Now, when you're quiet, you are not distant from what you were complaining about. Only your complaint kept you distant from your cold. Now you live with the cold and are at ease as, as, a, cold, as a cold, as a cold manifesting, not as a person that hates their cold. Okay, okay, so I know I'm going way out there. <laughs> but I mean, don't you think it's a little fun? Isn't it a little interesting to you? Do you just you want, you know, like checkers? You know, you just jump over this. Yeah. This, is, this is like flushing the whole thing. Let's, let's look and see what, what, this, what holds all this, where all this comes from. I want you to be interesting. I don't want it to be technical. And I, don't any, I haven't figured a way for me, for me to present it that doesn't bog me down in tech, technicality. And so I'm not sure I can do it, but I'm going to try. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.